So last week, um, we were, uh, went through Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 5, and uh, we learned some, uh, hopefully, some really important truths. You know, first of all, we learned that God is at peace with us, right? I mean, that's just powerful, that God is at peace with us. Because we have faith in Jesus, we are justified, and therefore, God is at peace with us. He's not at war with us. No matter what problems you are going through, no matter what trials you're experiencing, no matter how hard your life seems to be right now, God is not at war with you. He is at peace with you. And not only is God at peace with us, but we also, Paul talks about, we have this other beautiful gift called grace. And through faith, through our faith in Jesus, we have access to grace that we are told to rejoice in, right? Rejoice. And he said, not just rejoice in the fact that you've got grace and you got peace with God, but something else very special. He said, we are also told to rejoice in suffering. Everyone say amen. Yes. Now, listen, please, please don't think we are supposed to rejoice in the physical, uh, mental, emotional pain that we experience. You know, God's not saying let's be masochists. That's not what he's saying. No, what we are to rejoice in is the good work that is happening in the midst of the suffering. That is what God is telling us we have to rejoice about. And what were some of the good things that Paul mentioned? Do you remember? He said, what's going to happen when we go through trials, when we go through this suffering and we're rejoicing because there's some good things happening? Number one, we're developing endurance, right? That quitter is getting kicked out of our lives. That I'm a quitter is going. That's what endurance is. I'm not going to give up. I'm not quitting. I'm not going to cave. I'm not bailing out. And out of endurance, we develop character is a beautiful thing that makes us look and smell like Jesus, <laughs> which is what we're here for. It's to look like him. And out of character, we've got this brilliant, beautiful hope. And hope is given to us, and it is put into us by the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. And so God is at peace with us, and he causes everything, everyone say everything, He causes everything to work for our good. Endurance is for our good. Character is for our good. Hope is for our good. And that is why we can rejoice in our suffering. God is making it, making it work for our good. Now, the rest of Romans 5 has so many good truths to learn, and I, and, 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 and I hope you guys you know, got beyond and through Romans 5, and I don't know what you did your hear journal on, but there's so much more in Romans 5 that we could have talked about, but um, we're going to stick with the reading plan that we're doing, and so I hope you read all of Romans 5. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you're living it out. So, but today, what I want to do is I want to jump into Romans 6 from our church reading plan. And if you want to join us, we are going through the whole book of Romans. If you want to start reading it with us, we've got reading plans out on the Welcome Center. You can grab one of those and start reading along with us because we are uh, going through the book of Romans so that we can get as much as we can get out of this beautiful letter that Paul has penned. And so today we're going to jump into Romans 6. And I want to, I want to read starting in verse 1. It says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. 
For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. And we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Amen. Amen. Now, if you recall last Sunday, if you were in the building, we took communion. One thing that we've got to remember when, when we take communion is that in communion, which we call the Lord's Supper, in communion, Jesus gives himself to us. This is my blood. Take this in remembrance of me, right? And each time we partake, we receive those precious gifts again by faith. But in water baptism, we give ourselves to him. We offer him our old sinful self so that it can die with him on the cross and be buried with him in the grave. And this is where Paul says our new life actually begins. It begins with our death. Now, I know it can sound morbid and maybe, you know, when we hear those words, we don't really maybe understand what it means. But in the spiritual world, there is no getting away from the fact that death precedes life. Something must die before new life can be born. So we shouldn't be surprised when Paul starts talking about how believers can live beautiful new lives free from the power of sin that starts with the subject of death, our death. In fact, Jesus really teaches this clearly in John 12. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. So first and foremost, we have to understand when Jesus said this, he was talking about himself. He was telling us that he had to die on the cross so that he could bear much fruit. And that fruit is us. That's us. Some of you are a little more nutty than others. But we are God's fruit. And he went on to say that this principle of dying, that Jesus had to die so that we could be saved, but this principle of dying is true for us as well. We have to die. We have to die to this world like he did if we are to become his followers. In John 12, he says, whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now what does that mean? Does it mean that I have to become a grumpy person? Stop enjoying people and beautiful things around me? The answer is no, it doesn't. In fact, the more I die to this world, the more I enjoy the beauty and people around me. That's when, when new life really happens. Now this truth about dying with Jesus, I, it can be confusing. We can find it scary, we can find it repulsive, we can run away from it. We can misunderstand it and end up actually killing the wrong things. Now, there's a phrase in Latin. It's called reductio ad absurdum. And this Latin phrase, it describes a tactic in debate. And that is that you take what someone has said and you press it to such an extreme that it becomes ridiculous. Now, this phrase also points to a dangerous 
human tendency. That is, we can take something that is true and push it beyond the area where it was meant to be applied until it becomes false. Now, no one in here has ever done that, right? We're talking about other people. Certainly there has never been in Christianity any part of the body of Christ who took a truth and pushed it to such an extreme that it's no longer true. Never happened. So other people, other religions. So let's just think about them. But we can take something beautiful and we push it to the extreme until it becomes ugly. So if we hear this message today about dying to self wrongly, we can end up sleeping on a wooden bench in an unheated room with a goat hair shirt. And that who's playing today? The goats and the and the tigers? Is that who's playing? Go goats. You see, if we take this message in, in, in the wrong way, we can focus ourselves entirely on hating the wrong things. Wasting precious days that could have been used to serve Jesus. So let's read verse 1 again. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? So, let's remember back in chapter 5, Paul ends that chapter with this huge truth that through one man, namely Adam, right, the first human God created, that through that one man, when he, he failed God and he sinned, condemnation came to everyone. Because we are his, his offspring. All of us came through Adam. And because he blew it so very early in the, in the timeline, sin came in. And because of him, that, that penalty of sin has become something we all have to deal with. Every one of us. But Paul says also, not only did condemnation come through one man, Adam... But through the one man, Jesus, everyone has received who believes in him righteousness. Then Paul goes on and he states that the law made knowledge of sin or or the trespass. He said it it made it increase. It, It made it stronger. But sin, when it increased through the law, he says something else beautiful happened. He said grace also increased even more. Notice even more, right? We're not just like neck and neck. Oh, grace or condemnation. No, it's even more. Even more. And so Paul starts chapter 6 with this great big question because Paul's gospel of grace is unsettling to those who think that salvation can and should be achieved by earnestly trying harder, by trying to keep all of God's rules. It's unsettling when you hear what he's trying to tell us. So it's no surprise that Paul more than likely had some critics who were trying to undermine what uh, he had taught just to try to make him look foolish, right? Reductio ad absurdum. Now, I think a normal person would not read Paul in this letter and somehow conclude that God actually wants believers to keep sinning so that he can give them more and more grace. The idea is ridiculous, actually. And I imagine Paul would even not even think about to refute such a notion unless someone actually tried to press him on it, tried to challenge his teaching. So here's Paul. He's disgusted by this suggestion. In fact, he calls it blasphemous. He thinks of it as blasphemy, and he condemns this idea by exclaiming, by no means. May it never be. 
He's yelling it. <laughs> no way, Jose. So now he says, but, but it's, it's out there, and so now he's got to untangle this confused logic that these people have brought to him. So first of all, he asks the question, why would any person who had died to sin by means of a deep repentance and was therefore fully surrendered to God, why would that person even want to keep on sinning? The suggestion is illogical. Because, again, let's remember you know, what Paul said in Galatians 5, 24. He said, those, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. See, a heart that desires to please God would never want to continue sinning, let alone look for an excuse to sin even more. So starting in verse 3, he starts to make his argument against this very absurd and blasphemous idea. He says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Now, Paul's critics apparently have forgotten something. They've forgotten what takes place when someone becomes born again. So he's going to remind them. To become born again requires a profound repentance. It requires a profound repentance, which includes choosing a radically new attitude towards sin. And so Paul points to baptism because repentance is a major part of what is being expressed in the act of water baptism. I mean, how could the meaning of, of repentance be made more vivid than by immersing someone fully underwater in a symbolic burial ceremony? You see, in baptism, a believer chooses to lie down in a watery grave with Christ, joining him in his death. And when baptism is done in true faith, there are at least three levels of meaning concerning the death that is actually being expressed. First, we are publicly indicating that we are dying to our old way of life in which we had lived in rebellion to God and in pursuit of our own selfish goals. So, by baptism, we, are, we deliberately bury that way of life that we were living. The second thing is baptism expresses something even deeper than a human decision. It becomes a symbolic prayer that asks God to crucify our old sinful nature and replace it with his new nature. And then the third thing is the choice to die with Christ in the spiritual world becomes an actual death. And so as Paul continues on in this letter, he's going to speak of uh, the death that's symbolized by baptism in a surprisingly literal way. Because he wants us to understand that when the decision to die with Christ takes place, water baptism represents this. And it is a step of faith that has an impact in the spirit world as if a literal, physical death had taken place. Are you wrapping your head around this? In the spirit world, you are literally seen as gone. You're dead, who you were. They're like, where did, where did that person, they're, they're not here anymore. It's like, you know, we watch these silly movies about the rapture and how you Christians go away and their clothes fall to the ground, right? And Where's Tom? He doesn't exist anymore. He's not with us. Well, in the spirit world, that person, that rebel against God and his ways and his love that, that lived and was well known, 
And from that point on, the law can no longer condemn us. Because we have already died to our sins with Christ. Which means the devil can no longer demand that we be punished. Because we have already died with Christ. You see, Adam's rebellious nature no longer has a right to govern us because we already died to Adam's old nature. And Paul's critics who, who are afraid of this teaching, they're, they're fearful that it's going to produce some kind of lawlessness in us. They simply don't understand, they don't grasp the real changes that occur when a, por- a person is fully born again. This means that baptism is more than just a symbol. It is a declaration of faith testifying to real transactions that have taken place in a believer's heart in the spiritual world. Romans 6, 4 says, We are buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. Water baptism symbolizes more than just a burial. See, the act of raising a believer out of the water after being immersed, it actually symbolizes our participation in Christ's resurrection. So not only do we receive the spiritual benefits of his death, but we receive the spiritual benefits of his resurrection. See, the Holy Spirit, whom Paul calls here the glory of the Father, the Holy Spirit brought Jesus' dead body back to life and transformed it into an immortal one. Well, guess what happens to us someday down the future? Jesus will resurrect our bodies as well. And we will be immortal. But for now, He lives inside us. He indwells us so that we can start to walk in the newness of life. So that that we can actually live at a new level of obedience to God right now. You know, the overall emphasis of these verses is really, it's, it's, it's upon our profound identity with Christ. That's what Paul's trying to to paint this picture of baptism. Baptism is linked to the idea of identification. Everyone say identification. (laughs) Baptism is linked to the idea of identification, especially when it's linked to a person's name. So for instance, 1 Corinthians chapter 10 Starting in verse 1, it says, I, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. So Paul tells us that the Israelites were baptized into Moses. And he's not talking about water baptism, but he's talking about the fact that they became united with him as never before, as they recognized his leadership and their dependence on him. So it's the same idea with Christ. Matthew 28, 19 says, Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. See, when we are baptized into him, we achieve a profound identification with him. We get a new identity. Now, verse 5 says, If we've been united with him in death, like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing 
so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Now, the first part of this verse literally reads, for if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death. Now, this spiritual planting or burial, which is being expressed here in the act of baptism, it goes beyond merely seeing ourselves as included in his death. It means that like him, we chose to die to self just as he did. Right? Remember Luke 9, 23, it says, he said to all of them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. So our spiritual planting or burial means that we place on the cross with Jesus the old, independent, rebellious, selfish person we used to be so that that person can die there with him. And again, this act is a profound rejection of our old nature. We are telling God that we long to be free from the sinful impulses that arise from the flesh of our bodies. And that now my spirit wants to please Him. These old impulses, they are my enemy now. Because my old impulses are constantly trying to tempt me to disobey Him. It makes them His enemy and it makes them my enemy. See, a person who has died to sin longs to be free from those unhealthy impulses and appetites and emotions and attitudes which begin in the flesh of our bodies. So it's, it's important to note that Paul identifies this source of the problem as the body of sin. You see, humans are composed of three distinct interdependent elements. They have, we have a body, a physical body, we've got a soul, and we've got our spirit, which is our immortal personality that has been made in the image of God. And so Paul, by, by, by locating the source of our rebellious nature as being in our flesh or our body, Paul is saying that the rebellious nature we inherited from Adam, it's no longer present in our spirit. Not in the spirit of someone who is joined with Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. And the old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So the new birth, it actually creates in us an internal conflict. We've got our renewed spirit that just wants to obey God and wants to say yes. And, but it's inside a body, a flesh that remains unsubmitted to God remains unsubmitted to our, or even our renewed spirit. Romans 6, 7 says, For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now this verse literally reads, For the one having died has been justified from sin. It's the Greek word dikaio. It doesn't say freed from sin. It says justified from sin. And the difference is significant. See, death brings justification because death is the punishment that sin deserves. Freedom is the result of being justified. So when my moral guilt is removed, sin's right to enslave me has ended. However, when sin does occur, there is a transfer of authority. 
See, by sinning, I become a slave of sin. By my disobedience, I hand over to sin legal right to dominate me and in time for death to seize me. But when I'm justified, the authority is given back to me. And this is true of my body as well as my spirit, which is why Paul emphasizes that Jesus' cross justifies both spirit and body. So let's just recap for a moment. So Paul has taught us in this, this passage here in Romans 6, 1 through 7. He says, Jesus not only died for me, but by faith I died with him. And in the spirit world, that death is considered as real as a literal, physical death. And by dying with Christ, I was fully punished for my sins. See, a person can only die once for their sins. And since I died with him, all moral judgments against me have been satisfied. Yeah, anyone can say amen about any of those things. Because I died with Christ, I have already been punished for my sins. Because Christ was punished for my sins. I was on the cross with Him by faith. And so all moral judgments against me have been satisfied. This includes the demands of justice in God's heavenly court. And I am justified. And in being justified, I am not only forgiven, but I'm also set free from the sin to which I had become enslaved to. That means my body, though it's still at times rebellious, my body is able to obey my renewed spirit. So the question is, what part of me is supposed to die? Paul says that water baptism explains this. He says that in baptism, I lay the old selfish rebellious life in the grave and I rise set free to live from him in the power of the Holy Spirit. I mean, listen to how Paul describes his own life as a believer. He says in Galatians 2.20, he says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live but Christ who lives in me and the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul gets it. So what dies isn't my spirit or even the uniqueness of who God made me to be. What dies is the old sinful self of me. And by dying with Christ, the Lord has surgically freed me from compulsive self-love and pride so I can live for a brand new purpose. And that purpose is to bring His love and His truth to others. John and, or Jesus said in John 12, He says, If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. And if everyone serves me, the Father will honor him. So if I'm supposed to be with Jesus, well, where is he? Well, one thing we know is he's loving God with all of his heart, his soul, his mind, and his strength. And the second thing we know is that he's loving my neighbor as himself. That's where we have to be. Now, I realize we have to check ourselves from time to time. We have to check our motives because it's possible to practice Christianity with an entirely selfish motive. Getting me to heaven, uh, protecting me, blessing me, making my life easier. True Christianity is a radical relocation of self. Jesus calls to live for a brand new purpose, and that is to daily, moment by moment, refuse to let the old man live again. To moment by moment, choice by choice, refuse to let my old self back into the center of my life. 
And how do we do that? We have to choose. You have to choose. You have to engage your will and push it away. You have to pray. <laughs> Lord, I need a miracle to resist this temptation. God, I renounce it, but you, God, you've got to take it. And is this just something we do once? We come to the altar and, God, forgive me for my sins. Thank you. See you later. Uh-uh. No, it's not. This is something I do at every major intersection of my life. Where am I going to work, God? Who am I going to marry? Who are my friends going to be? How am I going to share your love with the world? No, we continually submit day by day, moment and moment, by, to God and His choice for our life. The key decisions about the direction of my life, all of them, big and small, need to be submitted to Him. See, dying with Christ is dying to myself. And that is something that I do day by day, moment by moment, as selfish impulses try to lure me back to live for my own pleasure. Here's some practical ways that we die to ourselves. You should take a picture if you'd like. See, I die to self by dying to my own glory. It means I refuse to receive honor that is due God. Now, it doesn't mean that I refuse to let him mature me and promote me. But when I die to self, I'm also dying to my own pleasure. Right? It means that I refuse to indulge in things that are impure or addicting. It does not mean that I reject lovely gifts from God that he has given us. Because God delights to bless us. When I die to self, I'm dying to my own safety. This is a big one right now. Because it means I'll take the hard step in those moments when I need courage to obey God. Now again, it doesn't mean that I will show a wanton disregard for my own physical safety. And then I die to myself by dying to my own fulfillment. Which means that I, my heart is going to turn outward. And I do what I do in such a way as to draw people to Jesus. Try to put others before my own needs. I serve sacrificially. Right? It's in our mission. Now, what it doesn't mean is that I, I neglect my own health, my family, just so I can sustain a frantic work schedule, a frantic school schedule, or a frantic ministry schedule. Now, does this mean i got to quit my job and get on a plane with Emily to Africa and join the mission field? Only if that's what he's specifically telling you to do. See, what God wants, he wants an attitude. An attitude transformation. So that everything I do, going forward, I do as his servant. Hoping that I will receive his will for my life. And, and hoping that he will receive the benefit of my fruitful labors. See, dying to self means living for God and what is important to Him. That means everything I do is transformed because of the reason I do it. Because of Jesus, the reason changes for everything that I do. It's different. Paul speaks of this in Philippians 2. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, 
though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Has anyone spilled any blood for how bad they've obeyed God? Not many. The reason changes for why we obey. That means if I own a business or I manage a department, I see those as who I'm responsible for as people that God loves. And I treat them with respect and honesty and compassion, even if I have to discipline them. If I work for someone, I do my job well as if Jesus were my boss because I want to please him. That means I refuse dishonesty. I refuse laziness and gossip, crude or blasphemous jokes and language. They don't come out of my mouth. If you're someone who deals with the public, That means we try to use our products or services in such a way that really, truly help our customers. As a parent, I'm constantly having to put aside my own needs to care for my children. I set aside my own ambitions for their well-being. I set aside my ambitions for your well-being. Because I'm watching for their gifts. And the calling that God has placed on you. And I'm praying for them daily. As a spouse, I have to put my desire to live a single life aside. Realize I chose a woman, or you chose a man, chose to make children. That means we chose to devote ourselves to our family. If I'm a student, that means I, I need to be selecting courses that I believe God wants me to take and study hard and to prepare myself for His service, whatever that is. When I get offended, that means I take a, a, the initiative and I, I go to them to be reconciled. When I get honored, I acknowledge God. See, I, when, when change, transformation of my attitude happens, I, I gladly stop doing things that might cause another brother or sister to stumble. And I'm, I'm now looking for opportunities to show God's love to people by serving them kindly. It means that I'm I'm putting aside fears of what others might think of me or what they might do to me so that I can have the courage to tell them about Jesus. I do these things because my reason for doing them has changed. I am dead. I am dead with Christ, and now I live for His pleasure to obey His will. And listen, this kind of dying, it releases an entirely different kind of life. When I become born again, I now have eyes that can see past the present and into the future. Which means that I realize the shortness of my life in this world. That means I live for the, uh, day by day to see him face to face. And that means that instead of building a kingdom here, I prefer to lay all my treasures up in heaven. I mean, listen to how Isaiah describes this death. He says, a voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. 
The, gla- the grass withers, the flowers fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. Go up on a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. And he will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. If we were to paraphrase this, I think he's saying, tell them they're dying. Tell them their lives are so short that they mustn't focus their hearts on being fulfilled here. They're like wildflowers that bloom for a few weeks and then die. But also tell them I've made a promise that I will fulfill even after they die. And my promise is this, that all will see my glory. And I will come and I will set up my kingdom And I will have rewards in one hand for those who are mine and just wages in the other for those who lived for this world. And I will be tender with those who have waited for me like a lamb waits for its shepherd. Now before I share our action plan, I want to extend an invitation. I want to offer you a moment right now. If you've never accepted Jesus, you've never been born again. You heard Mike tell his story. Him getting free and sober started the day he died with Christ. When he turned himself over and he said, I... I submit to you. Shelly and her story. Her life changed the day she decided to die. And so I'm asking today at the end of service, if you have never accepted Christ and you're ready for that choice, I want you to come see me right after church, okay? There's no reason to die in your sins. There is no reason you can be free. And then I want to invite you to this next step. Even if you've been saved, if you've never been water baptized. If you've never been water baptized, I want you, and I want you to come see me after service as well. If you've never been water baptized, it is now time to tell the world both natural and in the spirit, that you have died with Christ. And that you now have a new nature that no longer wants to sin. You know, maybe you were baptized as a child or a baby, and you need to make the declaration that you solely belong to Jesus. Water baptism is how we can do that. Maybe you've walked away from God. And you want to renew your commitment to Him. Water baptism is a wonderful way to do that. So I'm asking you to come forward if you need to receive Jesus as your Savior. Or to come forward if you want to get baptized. And we will make arrangements for that to happen. Amen? Amen. So here's your action plan for this week. If you're not water baptized... Get water baptized. Next, I want you to, in your discipleship groups, in your family time, ask some questions. What did Jesus mean when he told us to hate our lives in this world? How would you explain this to a child? And then I want you guys to talk about a time when obeying God felt like dying. And if you obeyed, did you die? What was the result of your obedience? 
And then this week we're going to read Romans chapter 7. Do a hair journal. Talk about it with your family. Talk about it in your discipleship group. And then we're going to memorize Philippians 4a. Amen? All right, let's pray. God, I asked, Father, that we would have a deep and profound theological foundation stone built today, put in our lives about the fact of our death in the spirit world, and that because we are dead, we no longer want to sin. How can we sin anymore? We're not grace abusers, God. We want to be faithful followers. And so I'm asking today, God, that the truth of our death and resurrection with Christ would profoundly touch us. Touch our mind, but also go from our head to our heart. So I pray right now, God, that you would touch us and seal this word deep in our hearts. We would walk it out, live it out, and use it as as fuel to go be and live differently. And I ask that, Father, in the name of Jesus. And God, I am am praying for every every person who who, who needs to get saved today, that they would have the courage to come forth. They would come up here and they would say, I need Jesus, I want to receive him. God, I pray for that courage and that boldness today. Let the spirit of adoption fall in this place. And those who truly are ready for an eternity with him would come forth in Jesus' name. And I pray also, God, for those who have never been water baptized or want to rededicate their lives, God, that they would come forward as well. That we would make a public declaration together that says, I am dead with Christ. No longer do I live, but Christ who lives within me. So I ask for those two things today, God. I pray, Father, that you would go with us this day and this week. We need your hand as we moment by moment, day by day, submit our will to your choices. And we ask this, God, in the mighty name of Jesus. And everybody says, Amen. Amen. And amen.